a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, let us revel in wrong think. I do appreciate you joining me today. I want to thank my sponsors, including Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, Jeff Staples Real Estate, and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And a shout out to, uh, to those of you who have stepped up as listeners and said, yes, I like what you're doing here. I like the cut of your jib and have, uh, have graciously stepped forward and uh, become patrons of the show. Monthly donors, they sometimes donate $5, $10. It's always appreciated, and I truly, uh, I, I treat those funds as sacred funds that, that are used to help spread the message of liberty. You're not going to see me driving, you know, a new Mercedes. Well, maybe you will, but it won't be because of that. It'll probably be because, uh, I don't know, I want a lawsuit somewhere. Nah, that's not me either. I'm just not a Mercedes guy. I'm not the kind of guy whose success ever goes to his clothes, his looks, or his cars. You know where it goes? It goes to my barbecue stuff. <laughs> That's if, if I'm going to sink some money into something, it, it's going to be uh, cooking with fire and then uh, sharing the love with the people closest to me. Cause I just really, really dig that. Anyhow, let's talk about uh, what is going on here. Uh, this should seem so obvious. In fact, I have this one. This is from our, well, that ought to be obvious file. But did you realize reading too much political news is bad for your well-being? I'll give you a moment to grab a chair so you can sit down. I'm sure your knees just went weak upon hearing those words. No, seriously. And, and of course, the election year and the stress from coronavirus and all of the various intrigue. You know, the, I think the four horsemen of the apocalypse just rode up the street on four wheelers a little while ago. I, I don't know. We live in a pretty trying time. And politics, how did it, Robert Higgs put it like this, nincompoops shouting at each other. So, no, I didn't, watch the, I didn't watch the debate last night. I understand it was good entertainment for those who did. But I have reached a point where I'm just tired of putting my moral energy, of which I only have a finite amount on any given day. I don't like to put it into politics. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like it accomplishes anything. Now, what's funny is one of my good friends said immediately, oh, so you're just going to stick your head in the sand and play like everything's hunky-dory. No, that's not at all what I'm suggesting. And I'm just speaking for myself, so don't feel like this is something I'm telling you you ought to be doing too. But there came a point where I realized I'm spinning my wheels in useless, impotent rage. And while it feels good, you know, to yell at the dog or to yell at at other people online, it doesn't accomplish anything. To be willing to fight to the death, you know, over, you know, some political point. No, especially partisan politics. I just can't make myself care about uh, being a standard bearer for this political party or that political party. And by the way, that includes the, uh, the Libertarian Party, which I think, you know, they have a great message in many respects. But in the end, it comes down to politics. So it's, it's been very tough for me to get excited about this. And when I read this article from Arthur C. Brooks, uh, 
reading too much political news is bad for your well-being. I thought, okay, I'm going to share a few excerpts of this with you. You do with it as you will. If you want to see the whole article, go to my show notes, thebrianhydeshow.com. This will be show notes for October 8th. And you can, can peruse it yourself and decide whether this makes sense. He says, of the many ideas from Eastern religion and philosophy that have permeated Western thinking, the second noble truth of Buddhism arguably shines the greatest light on our happiness or lack thereof. Samudaya, I'm probably saying it wrong. Someone can call up and correct me. As this truth is also known, teaches that attachment is the root of human suffering. To find peace in life, we must be willing to detach ourselves and become free of sticky cravings. Now, I'm just going to drift away from that for just a moment and just think about that. Attachment really can lead to a lot of unhappiness. Yeah, I'm not trying to pick open an old wound here, but uh, did you ever stay in a relationship that you knew wasn't good for you? But that sense of attachment that uh, I can't I can't live without you and, and you hung on and you were miserable. Think about that. People do it all the time. I don't share this story everywhere, so I'm just going to share it with the, you know, the few thousand of us that happen to be gathered here. Um, one, of, one of the worst missteps that I ever made as far as speaking out was when I was breaking up with, uh, with a girl who I'd been dating. I was pretty serious. I, was, I, I really thought, man, she's, she is beautiful. She is the one. And, uh, and I, I hung on way longer than I should have. And there finally came a point where even I could not deny the reality that the, the relationship was just hopelessly broken. It wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, she wanted it out. I now recognize it was making her miserable, too. I, and I wish I hadn't hung on as long as I did. But when I finally came to that moment of realization, I went, okay, this is not working for either one of us. I spoke the words, you know what? I think it's probably time we just say this is done. And as soon as I said the words, this incredible weight came off of my shoulders. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this. And it was such a profound sense of relief. I hadn't even realized I was carrying that weight. But it was so profound that the next words out of my mouth were, wow, that felt so good. (laughs) The look on her face was like, okay, that probably wasn't the right thing to say. But I, I could not believe the sense of relief. And the only thing that was more shocking was how did I carry that around with me for so long and not even know that I was doing it? Okay, that's the power of attachments, sticky attachments. And what what Arthur C. Brooks is pointing to here is he's saying, if you want to free yourself from those uh, attachments that, that bind you down and make you unhappy, you got to be willing to examine them. So what are yours? He asks, is it money, power? Pleasure, prestige, dig deeper. Maybe your opinions. The Buddha himself named this attachment and its terrible effects more than 2,400 years ago, when he's believed to have said, those attached to perception and views roam the world offending people. Wow, that is a truth that has withstood the test of time. More recently, the Vietnamese Buddhist sage, uh, I'm not going to say the name right. Teach Na Han wrote in his book, Being Peace, Humankind Suffers Very Much from Attachments to Views. So Arthur C. Brooks is saying here, as the election season heats up, 
Many Americans are attached to their opinions, especially their political ones, as if they were their life savings. They obsess over beliefs like lonely misers and lash out angrily when threatened. This is the source of much suffering for both the politically possessed and everyone else. And I love that phrase, politically possessed. And I'm not suggesting I'm immune from it either. But I recognize it for what it is, and I make a conscious effort to try to avoid it. Now, fortunately, Arthur C. Brooks says there are solutions. He says little research has been conducted on the direct links between happiness and one's attention to politics. But the indirect evidence is not encouraging. For example, Dutch researchers in 2017 conducted a study on how hard news that tends to how hard news that tends to provide a political perspective affects well-being. And they found that on average, well-being falls 6.1% for every additional television hard news program watched each week. And they explained this by noting the dominance of negative stories on such programs and the powerlessness viewers might feel in the face of all that bad news. He says it's difficult to imagine that stories about political news in America would have any less of a negative effect, especially given how fraught and contentious United States politics is right now. So he said in an attempt to see clearly how attention to politics is directly associated with life satisfaction, he conducted an analysis using 2014 data from the General Social Survey after controlling for household income, education, age, gender, race, marital status and political views. He found that people who were very interested in politics were about eight percentage points more likely to be not very happy about life than people who were not very interested in politics. So the Dutch researchers point about negativity and powerlessness might play a role here. But he says something even more important might be happening. Arthur C. Brooks says, I believe that today's partisan climate, media, polarization and constant political debates are interfering directly with the fuel of happiness. Which is love. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a few moments, because one of the things that he talks about here is how it particularly affects the relationships of those closest to us. And I want you to be honest with yourself. Do you have close family members, dear friends that you've either unfriended or otherwise have stepped away from? Yeah, we just can't talk anymore. Well, stick around because we're going to talk about how to fix that courtesy of Arthur C. Brooks, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So do you spend a lot of time thinking and watching and reading about politics? What if that had a direct correlation to your happiness? Arthur C. Brooks, uh, I think, has uh, has a very thought-provoking article. I share it in the show notes. I encourage you to go through it. I'm not going to share the entire thing, but he talks in here about how uh, our growing focus on politics is driving uh, what uh, scientists call political homophily. That's a fancy way of saying assortive mating by political viewpoint. And, and I've heard people say, well, I could never date or I could never get serious about someone who votes that way or thinks this way. 
and to which Arthur C. Brooks says, if politics is so important as to preclude romantic love where it otherwise might have blossomed, happiness will fall as a result. And he says, parents can contribute to this. You know, my daughter's not going to marry any Democrat. That sort of thing. And friendships and family ties become compromised by political disagreements as well. In fact, he says, polling data shows about one in six Americans stopped talking to a friend or family member because of the 2016 election. Now, no doubt these were mostly cases where friends and family disagree, but even when people agree politically, expressing intense views or going on and on about politics harms relationships. And he says, beware of in-laws, too. That, that can be a problem. And last but not least here, he warns about retreating too far into your own political bubble, the echo chamber, if you will. This affects your ability to think clearly because it makes you ignorant of the world. Fairleigh Dickinson University did a survey back in 2012, and they asked a sample of Americans about their news consumption habits and then quizzed them about U.S. and international political and economic events. You know what they found? Those watching the most partisan television news sources on both the left and the right were often less knowledgeable about world events than those who consumed no news at all. Does that surprise you? In sum, he says, if you spend the election season glued to your favorite partisan news outlet, read and share political outrage on social media, and use every opportunity to fulminate about politics, you might become less happy, less well-liked, less accurate, and less informed. Now, he says right here, I'm not advocating for people to stop paying attention to politics, of course. Good citizens are attentive and active in the political process, but... For quality of life's sake, yours and others. He says you would do well to put boundaries around the time and emotional energy you devote to politics this fall. And he has three suggestions. I think these are well worth considering. Get involved instead of complaining. I think that's a, that's a very good bit of advice. The appetite uh, for constant indignation fuels an outrage industrial complex in media and politics. It makes compromise harder. But when you get active and work with people, when you start to see people as people other than just some opponents, you know, online. Better things happen. You can actually start to implement solutions. And best of all, you can do it without appealing to government. Hey, you do this for us. You're taking care of it closer to home. Number two, he says, discuss or rather ration your consumption of politics and limit the time you spend discussing it. A key characteristic of addictive behavior is the displacement of human relationships by the object of addiction. So if you want to gauge whether you have a problem, what you can do is ask, is this activity a complement to my relationships or has it become a substitute? In the case of politics, for many people, the honest answer would be clearly the latter. Hence the willingness to damage relationships, friendships, and romances. So the solution is to ration your consumption, set proper boundaries around where you talk about it. He says, I recommend limiting the consumption of all news, not just politics, to 30 minutes a day. Unless news is your vocation. Ha! He gave me a get-out-of-jail-free card. Thank you. <laughs> Much more than that, he says, and you might just be upsetting rather than informing yourself. And believe it or not, people can get addicted to being upset. He says it might be hard at first, but I'd wager that eventually you'll savor the respite, especially during election season where politics is everywhere. Okay, final point. 
Turn off ultra-partisan news sources, especially the ones you agree with. Does that sound counterintuitive? He talks about in 2017, The Onion, the satirical site, introduced a current events talk show called You're Right. And in it, the host feeds viewers their own beliefs and biases, assuring them that they are right and those who disagree are stupid and evil. Now, it's parody, of course, but it captures a real reason why people often turn to partisan news sources. It brings emotional satisfaction to hear experts and famous people saying things you agree with and denouncing those with whom you disagree. But this also has bad effects on your relationships and can leave you poorly informed. Step away for a while. You'll start to realize how much of your energy it was consuming, how much better you feel without these influences. I notice the world starts to look a lot more normal as a result. He says this fall is going to be rough politically. The, the election is going to be brutal and bitter. There's no way to avoid that. But we Americans have to decide whether we want our own lives to be brutal and bitter as well. Each of us has political views, some of them strongly held. Each of us is convinced that we're right, and some of us may well be. But if we let those views dominate our, th- dominate our thoughts, our time, and our conversations, they will harm our relationships and happiness. So we can be happier if sometimes we follow the Buddha and just let our opinions go. All right, let's open up the phones here. 801-331-8113. Caller, thank you for your patience. Welcome to the show. You know, Brian, you are, I, I'm guilty 100%. As am I. I'm guilty too. But but on, on the flip side of the coin, how serious to you is this? The direction that our country was going and still is it, for that matter. How serious is it deep inside of you right now in your heart? Oh, it's it's very serious. So it, 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 it yeah, you're you're effect, you're mentally affected by it, and, and so am I. And you know, back in 1776, when those guys were fighting to get away from England, I think they were feeling the same thing, and. Uh, you know, I, I think we're there. We were at that point. We're we're trying to save our way of life because beforehand we were about to be consumed by a one-world order before this president took over the White House. And uh, I got news for you. You know, it's definitely uh, still on the table. So. Yeah, I, I think it, it is troublesome, but you know what? When those guys were looking across 100 yards away at their enemy, packing a black powder rifle, and it's saying it's either them or me, I don't think they were worrying about being nice or who liked them or who cared about them, who disliked them. And, uh, you know, that's all I got to say. I, I think this is serious stuff. And I think right now they're getting nervous because more and more people are uprising. They're getting more vocal. And they're getting more engaged in what's going on, more so than I've ever seen for years of all the corruption and all the, uh, you know, the ways we've been getting ripped off as taxpayers. So I don't know. I don't know if it's a good time to throttle down is what I'm saying. I think it's a, it's a good time to redirect. I don't see anything that suggests, hey, you know, uh, this is this is the time to let go of your principles or just um, but but look where your efforts are, are actually having, a, you know, an effect and where they aren't. 
politics is creating a lot of light and noise, but it's but it's not creating much in terms of actual um, results. So yeah, but you know what? You know what? I'm finding out there's a lot of people that think like you and I, and are we're afraid to express themselves and come out, and you know, the more and more you're vocal on this topic, yeah, the more and more people you get that are, you know, I've had it lined up in places to say anything. Okay, I got to stop you here because I'm up against the break. Thank you for the call, Rob. Keep the faith, brother. Anybody else want to weigh in on this? 801-331-8113. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out to uh, my friends at Jeff Staples Real Estate. Jeff is with ERA Brokers Consolidated, and if you are listening to me within the state of Utah, Jeff can help you. If you're looking to sell a home, you're looking to buy a home, he will help you sell your home for more. He will help you buy your home for less. He has 13 years of experience in doing this. Very, very good at what he does, and like I said, connections all over the state. And I do appreciate his sponsorship of this show. You can go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Down there at the bottom, I have a nice little list, a tidy list of my sponsors, as well as a link that will take you directly to how you can get in touch with Jeff Staples Real Estate. All right, I'm going to shift gears here for a moment. Uh, you heard me talk yesterday about the uh, Great Barrington Declaration. In fact, I actually took a step and went one one better and signed the declaration. You don't have to be a, a medical professional or a professor. Uh, my credentials uh, were pretty modest compared to a lot of those who've signed it. But I'll tell you what I am. I'm a concerned citizen who is sitting back and watching people in positions of authority take advantage of a global pandemic and use it to destroy people's economic livelihood. I'm seeing them use it to destroy people's autonomy and ability to worship freely, to gather freely, to so much as express sympathy at a funeral. And I'm convinced there is a better way. And this Great Barrington Declaration is a marvelous piece by some of the top people out there. Some, you know, it's not to say these are people who say they have all the answers, but these are scientists who clearly don't agree with the lock everything down mentality and instead urge focused protection. Keep the most vulnerable safe, but pretty much let everybody else choose for themselves the degree of risk that they are willing to face and get out there and live life and let the virus make its way through the population instead of running and hiding from it. Get that exposure and become immune. So that's that's what we need to see happen. Something different. Otherwise, I think we're just going to see this turn into a, a, a long extended lifetime version of lockdowns. Now, what's interesting is this Great Barrington Declaration. This was arrived at over the weekend. It was a, a conference hosted by the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, I've posted links in the show notes for the last couple of days that can take you to videos or to the actual declaration itself. 
And it's obviously making some waves here. Why? Because the opposition is coming out and man, they are loaded for bear. I mean, the prime minister of Great Britain. Wow, we can't have that. That is just uh, irresponsible. And, 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 and some of the critics are actually saying, so what you're really saying here is uh, let the rest of us go back to work and lock up grandma. Well, there's a great piece from the American Institute for Economic Research, Amelia Janaski and Misha Gartz. I'll have this posted in the show notes. Worth reading their take on this. Because they can clearly see that across the political spectrum, pundits who claim to be listening to the scientists while asserting that individuals, they they claim to be listening to the scientists, but they're asserting that individuals they don't agree with are not. And in addition to being an inane response, that exhortation implicitly suggests that there is scientific consensus on policy, but there's not. Not among laymen, not among experts. You hear somebody say the words, the science is settled. They're trying to sell you something. Now, these authors here explain it tends to break down this way. On one side are pro-lockdown experts focused exclusively on the novel coronavirus and COVID-19, blindly following their unmovable biases, pursuing self-promotional Faustian interviews to increase citations. On the other side are the few willing to speak against the run-and-hide narrative, risking their careers, risking their reputations, and possibly their and their family's safety. Consequently, we have an apparent consensus driven by the left dominant view that lockdowns are essential until a vaccine is developed. Until now, those dissenting opinions have been muted until the publication of the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, what you need to know in a nutshell, the Great Barrington Declaration doesn't deny that COVID-19 may lead to sickness and death in elderly and vulnerable individuals. But its focus is on avoiding the unnecessary physical, mental, social, economic, and educational impacts of lockdowns, which, if appended to a discussion, appear as a mere footnote to the policy debate. It proposes a focused protection strategy of safeguarding the elderly and other at-risk individuals, like those with comorbidities, compromised immune systems, etc., while allowing low-risk groups to carry on their lives with the ultimate aim of reaching herd immunity. Yet, as the advice of the esteemed public health officials in the Great Barrington Declaration has spread, the media and other scientists are doubling down on their arguments. Since its signing on Sunday, October 4th, a slow but steady drumbeat of criticism has emerged overwhelmingly following, or falling into the following categories. Number one, you want to lock up grandma. And she gives a great, both of these authors give a great response to this. They're grasping at the allegedly awful and positively inhumane nature of this policy suggestion. Well, we'll just lock up the old and let the young go about their business while we build up herd immunity. Number two, there's the scholarly article camp that they fall into. On a forum, Professor James Naismith acknowledges the value of a return to normalcy. Citing a massive litany of information, he asserts that writers and signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration would have to consider before he would support it. He acknowledges that actual implementation may be beyond the expertise of the signatories, which leaves his caveat in a confusing state of limbo. Now, the nature of this criticism demands a 30-page scholarly article of the type which only journal reviewers and closely associated academics would read. This, of course, is the fate of the overwhelming majority of peer-reviewed research anyway. And if the Declaration's authors sought to publish a policy proposal or scholarly author, all article, rather, there's nothing stopping them from doing so. The Declaration 
and subsequent research are mutually exclusive enterprises. Then there's the prescriptive policy paper. Much like the previous argument, some are voicing concern. Well, this declaration has not been explained, has not explained rather exactly how focused protection would work, among other things. In other words, these critics expect the declaration to be more prescriptive, perhaps akin to a 500-page policy paper detailing how every level and corner society should be run. Each society and culture is unique, with its own NGOs, government, uh, or rather volunteer organizations, even government agencies, who would undoubtedly step forward to help where and as needed. Part of the beauty and power of the Great Barrington Declaration isn't just its adherence to natural principles, but its simplicity. A bureaucratic, exquisitely detailed plan not only isn't necessary, but would likely bungle its execution. The Declaration was purposely restricted to a single page of about 500 words in order to make it more publicly appealing and accessible. It's the first step, opening a debate that, that alternative policy proposals can be called into consideration. Epidemiologists who are part of an interconnected web of medical and healthcare professionals and institutions who together can collaborate and produce better outcomes. Now, Declaration co-author Jay Bhattacharya says this, this idea that scientists should tell us politically what to do is a mistake. Scientists can inform the debate about what should happen, but fundamentally the trade-offs that are involved are political trade-offs. And I would echo, I think it was Jeffrey Tucker who talked about, be very, very careful. No, I take it back. It was Paul Rosenberg. Both great guys, both great commentators. Paul Rosenberg cautioned about, be careful about combining authority with power. Then you have the ideologues who are stepping up. And just, they are, they are trying to, to stereotype individuals according to their opinions, specifically masks and their observation of social distancing guidelines. So non-mask wearers are often denigrated as likely racist, MAGA-hatted Trump supporters, at the very least as selfish individualists, while the observantly masked are characterized as cowardly, germaphobe, control freaks, or privileged elites for whom working from home is a fait accompli. The bottom line here is if you're in the wrong camp, it just doesn't matter how educated you are on epidemiology, medicine, statistics, or any other specialization. you got to understand, Drs. Gupta, Bhattacharya, and Kuldorf didn't write this great Barrington Declaration as a definitive be-all, end-all regarding lockdowns or COVID-19. Their goal was to inform and stimulate debate with respect to public health outcomes in the midst of the current epidemic. They're trying to encourage greater discussion, not lock it down and say our way is the only way. And then you have those who are challenging what they call the immorality of herd immunity. Maybe it's because the term alludes to animals, in particular farm animals. A frequently heard reaction to the term herd immunity is that it contemplates a ghastly quasi-Darwinian calling of the sick and disabled. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments. It's contrived outrage, though. And it's something that you should not allow to fool you into thinking, well, I guess I better stick with whatever the experts are telling me on the TV and not question anything else. There's a lot that's at stake here. But the most important thing is you and I must step up and we have to own our own worldview. Don't wait for somebody to spoon feed it to you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, our program is brought to you in part today by Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. If you, like me, are trying to stretch your grocery dollar as far as it will go, and especially if you're listening in or around the Salt Lake City area, if you have access to the Wasatch Front, I think it would be worth your time. Jump onto Facebook, look up Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. You'll find directions to the warehouse there, and go take a look. They get fresh produce. They get a lot of frozen goods. They get a lot of restaurant-quality foods from food wholesalers that they turn around and then sell for huge, huge discounts. And best of all, everything they sell comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. So you can buy with confidence. I'm, I'm telling you, this is not a big, beautiful, big-box store like Costco. It's a warehouse. But if you're serious about saving as much as you can on your grocery bill and getting the best possible bang for your buck. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse is a great way to go. And I would encourage you when you go there and you see what I'm talking about and you're like, heck yeah, man, a big pack of Swiss cheese here for three bucks. I'm on it. Make sure when you're paying them, you tell them I came to check this out because I heard Brian talking about you. That way they know their advertising message reached your ears. All right. Let's go back again to this article about the Great Barrington Declaration. And this is a wonderful piece here by Amelia Janaski as well as Misha Gartz, both writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. And they're just they're pointing out how there are there's some pretty serious opposition coming out now against the Great Barrington Declaration, which is simply, you know, suggesting there's another way to approach this other than lock everything down. And one of the angles that they've taken here as well, you guys are talking about getting herd immunity, and that's immoral. And yet the authors here point out, you know, human beings face so many risks daily, we lose track of them. Eating, that's risky. You could choke to death. You know that, right? Drinking, driving to work, flying on aircraft, riding in elevators, swimming in the ocean, and so on ad infinitum. Yet as Dr. Martin Koldorf has pointed out, that fear shouldn't lead to shifting the burden from the more privileged members of society, including you and me, Onto the working class who are required now or being forced to bear the burden of COVID-19 or the pandemic. And it's a double whammy for them. Not everybody's fully aware of their complete health status. That's why we visit doctors and medical specialists for checkups and when required for treatment. But most of us know sufficiently enough of our own health status and thus have a good sense of our intrinsic vulnerability to a novel flu. The elderly are vulnerable. And sadly, some of the most vulnerable are no longer with us, in no small part owing to decisions made by politicians like New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo. With suitable precautions to protect the vulnerable, there may inevitably be a slight uptick in fatalities, but not the tsunami of death hysterically and thankfully inaccurately predicted by the media. They talk about the dated sensationalists, the camp COVID doesn't just kill you, people. And they summarize by saying, look, the Great Barrington Declaration is about everyone. It's about the healthy and the vulnerable being free to make personal risk assessments, given their local information and personal circumstances they face. Every individual needs to consider their own health and that of their household, the balance between their risk appetite and their desire to maintain normalcy in their lives and the costs of isolation, physical, mental, social, economic, educational, and so on. These assessments 
in a free society form the bedrock of an equitable means of preserving human rights and individual dignity. And they conclude by asking, please read and sign the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, there's another piece that accompanies this. This is also from the American Institute for Economic Research, and that is run away from COVID or get immune. And I like this one. This is from Robert E. Wright, who says, you know, if you want to really see how this this philosophy, the contrast between run away and hide or get immune, he says uh, you can look at the presidential race. In fact, uh, at the risk of ruffling some feathers, he says, does not Donald Trump deserve some credit? for finally talking about what we should have been talking about for these last seven horrifying months. He got the bug, shook it off, and thereby beefed up his immune system. Now, Robert Wright says the optics are impressive, and the case he should make now is that he can travel a country and indeed the world with his beloved First Lady, doing Nobel Peace Prize nomination-worthy stuff and returning the economy to a robust condition that will help all the downtrodden to catch up for lost income without fear and without masking or other authoritarianish forms of social distancing. And here's the real twist. And consider that if Biden were to win... However, he would have to hide in his bunker for at least the first half of his presidency and apparently will try to force the rest of the country to join him, at least for the first few months. He'll be under pressure to do something about the deteriorating economy, which is struggling and cannot likely survive a second lockdown. But if he ventures about too much, he'll be subject to withering criticism for not following his own lockdown mandate. And God help him if he gets a haircut. What if POTUS Joe catches the COVID? Old Joe will turn 78 this November, and although he appears to be in better shape than Trump, every year of age increases the probability of his death exponentially. Now, this does this is defensible, even if one doesn't mention what the exponent is. Why? He would probably die twice from the disease. Okay, that's hyperbole, but it does fit the tone of much of the COVID coverage. But it might take a while, and the country would be in utter chaos without Joe's firm grasp on the rudder, because not just the ship of state, but the entire country relies so desperately on the leadership of POTUS. You can tell his tongue is firmly in his cheek here, right? Okay. Eventually, Kamala Harris would become president. She's a fighter, but it would be bad news as the nation spirals out of control. He says, I won't bore you with the line of succession, but some of the folks near the top of the line would likely have to dodge bullets as well as the virus because they are geriatrics hated outside of their gerrymandered districts and would not be welcomed residents of the White House. Certainly, they would not have a mandate to rule. So again, the country would be rudderless and without a plan. But these Democrats are a smart bunch, and the evidence they believe is that they wear masks. But recall that the scientists say that the mask wearing protects others, not the wearer. Will Biden or Harris not have any contact with the public as they fight to do this, that, and the other thing? Will they instruct the Secret Service to push away mothers carrying maskless young'uns? That would be good publicity, not. But they would have to do so because we all know that the kids are COVID carriers, likely to kill even young, healthy teachers and professors. Why else would all those schools and colleges only offer inferior remote instruction this fall? He says, of course, it is possible that after Biden's election, a safe vaccine will appear and coronavirus cases will plummet because the whole country will be fighting systemic racism, which, as we learned over the summer, is a major virus inhibitor, according to the scientists. But we cannot be certain of that 
And it's difficult to be optimistic after seven months of bad news magically appearing after every bit of good news. All that we can be sure of is that a live Donald will be able to serve the American people without restriction, something his opponents cannot say. So Trump's message is that anyone who is truly serious about the pandemic has no choice but to vote for Trump. Or we can be truly serious about the pandemic in a different way. Nobody is or should be happy with the way American governments have handled this crisis because over 200,000 people have died and the economy is in tatters. Translated, tens of millions of Americans are hurting a lot, including some to join COVID-19 victims the old-fashioned way. Lockdowns are unconstitutional and at best delay the inevitable at a price that's too high to pay. In fact, he says the most serious that one can be about the pandemic is to join the fast-growing Great Barrington Declaration movement. Read it, sign it, and make your elected politicians implement it. The Declaration, Robert Wright says, says in effect the same thing that he did back in early April. Plan to end this madness. Stay at home or wear a hazmat suit about town if you want, but allow others the courtesy of going about their lives. If they get sick and die, it's none of your business. They can't get sick if you are in your basement in a hazmat suit or living whatever social distancing rules you think fit. If they get sick and get well, which is much more likely than them dying, even for middle-aged fatties like me, then America's one step closer to herd or community immunity. The faster that threshold is reached, whatever the percentage of the population happens to be in this case, the faster everyone can resume their 2019 lifestyles. In fact, he says the biggest difference between the Great Barrington Declaration and his April plan was that the former was written and signed by bona fide medical experts and since then thousands of other medical experts plus tens of thousands of common Joes and Josephines like him have joined the club by rejecting groupthink and thinking carefully about evidence in favor of liberty and personal and and familial responsibility, which is now stronger than it was in early April. So he says, regardless of your vote this November... It is indeed time to join Biden in his call to follow the scientists, the ones who have signed the Great Barrington Declaration. Okay, there's a lot of tongue in cheek there, but there's also a lot that I think could be taken serious. You'll find the links to this and all the other articles in the show notes at the com. It's not too much to ask that our freedoms be maintained and when necessary to demand that they be respected. Never forget that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.